You're listening to audio from Citizens Church in Annapolis, Maryland. I'm Pastor Joey, and I hope what you're about to hear blesses you, increases your love and knowledge of Jesus, and answers any questions that you might have about him. Our passage this morning is John 12, 35 through 50. So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of the light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he had heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe, for again Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me as himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Thank you, Nathan. Good morning, everybody. So we're in John chapter 12, and I invite you to turn there if you haven't yet. Uh, if, you know, if you're new here, if this is your first Sunday, uh, you've noticed that we just recited the Nicene Creed together. We typically uh, go through phases where we've done the Apostles' Creed, Nicene Creed. Who knows what will be next? But we recite creeds on Sunday mornings, and one of the reasons, we, there's several reasons we do that, actually. The first reason we do that is because it reminds us who are, who are followers of Jesus, what we believe, like what actually binds us together, what the foundation is that we're, that we're agreeing to walk on together. It, it's, it's the truth. It's our truth. It's our hope. But also it tells visitors, like if you're here and you're new and you're coming around, it just gives you a presentation of like, this is what we are. We're, we're kind of inserting ourselves into the stream of truth that all Christians throughout time have believed. But also sometimes it helps people realize here, if you're listening to that and, and, and hearing that creed, realize what you don't believe. Like you might not agree with those words. And we recite the creed for all of those reasons. But that last point, you know, helps us understand what we might not agree with, what we might not believe. Some of you here may not agree with that creed. You may not agree with what the Bible teaches. You may not agree with what Jesus teaches. But all of us here, regardless of where we're at in that spectrum of, I don't believe to, I've been walking with Jesus for decades, all of us here struggle with unbelief to a degree. All of us in here have aspects of our life or our entire life that are characterized by unbelief in Jesus. 
And that's what our passage is exploring today. If there's one singular theme that, that we're going to trace throughout this entire passage, it's the theme of unbelief, both for you here who are curious about Jesus but haven't made that commitment yet, and for those of us here who have made that commitment but still struggle with unbelief. So there's four points today we're going to walk through. First, the danger of unbelief, the danger of unbelief first. Secondly, the reasons for unbelief. Everyone's got reasons for holding back. Thirdly, the judgment against unbelief. And lastly, the hope despite our unbelief. So those are our four, the danger of unbelief, the reasons for unbelief, judgment against unbelief, and the hope despite unbelief. Sound good? Sound like a plan? All right, let's go ahead and pray together as we, as we embark on this journey together. Father, we come to you and we do acknowledge, that, Lord, we believe, but help our unbelief. We agree with that Father who's watching his son in pain and being tormented that we read earlier. God, we believe that help our unbelief. And so we come to you, God, weak. And God, in our weakness, we're made strong. In our weakness, we are candidates for your, for your grace. Your grace is sufficient for us. Your power is made perfect in our weakness. We come to you weak, God, because um, that's who you want to use. That's who you want to meet. That's who you want to partner with. That's who you want to give your favor and your grace to. And so, God, we come to you acknowledging that we don't have it all together. God, you oppose the proud but give grace to the humble. So we want to be humble enough right now to confess before you, our almighty God and gracious Father, that we struggle with unbelief. We struggle with obedience. We struggle with falling through. We are weak, God, and so help us. Meet us today where, we're we, where we are at. In your name we pray, amen. So the danger of unbelief. Let's go ahead and study that first. Jesus is going to show us the danger of unbelief first by what he teaches. He's going to teach a few things here. We're going to run through that quickly. He's also going to show us the danger of unbelief by what he does, like his actions that follow his teaching. So start with me in verse 34. It says this, the crowds answered him, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. So our Old Testaments tell us that the Messiah, the future king of Israel, he's going to set up a dynasty that's going to remain forever, like immortality, glorious immortality. So that's what they're thinking in their brains. That's who they hope Jesus is going to be. It's Passover. Remember, this is Passover. And so like this is the time for the king to reveal himself. This is the time for the king to set up that dominion and dynasty. And so that's who they're hoping Jesus is going to be, but they're confused because Jesus, just a few verses before this, says, hey, I'm the son of man, and I'm going to die. I'm going to be lifted up. I'm like that seed that goes into the ground that's going to perish to bear much fruit. So Jesus, they hope he's going to be the king who lasts forever. But from his own word, from his own mouth, just a few moments before this, he says, I'm going to perish. And so they're, uh, they're a little confused. He, he, we'll keep running in verse 34. They say, how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Who are you, Jesus? Who, what kind of son of, man, son of Man are you? And so if you know your theology, if you've read the Old Testament a lot or theology books or whatever, the Son of Man, that, that, that's Jesus' favorite self-designation. And it's this figure in the Old Testament that appears as a king, that appears as a prophet, that appears as a suffering servant, that appears as just a representative of humanity. It's this very flexible, nuanced figure. So they're trying to say, like, which one are you, Jesus? Like, which son of... We prefer that you're that king, the king one from the book of Daniel. But it sounds like you're saying that you're that suffering servant, son of man. So what kind of son of man are you? Who are we dealing with here, Jesus? Because what they hope he's going to be and what he says he is, it doesn't mesh. (laughs) It's not integrating together. And so he doesn't really match the profile. That's where they're starting off at. Okay, that's like where the seeds of unbelief are for them. But continue on through the story in verse 35, Jesus responds to them. 
and says, the light is among you for a little while longer. Jesus is the light of heaven. He is God incarnate. He is the light piercing the darkness. And he says it's only for a little while longer because that light's about to go out. In six days from this point, Jesus is going to be killed. Their time with him is running short. That's what he's saying. So what does, he, what does he say then after this? Continue on to verse 35. Walk while you have the light, meaning join me while I'm here. Believe in me while I'm before your eyes. Time is running out. Believe while you can. Otherwise, what? The darkness will overtake you. In other words, soon it may be too late. He's saying to them, you may arrive at a point where the darkness of unbelief wins the day and the light of Jesus never dawns again in your heart. Like this is your chance. Walk while you have the light. Time is running out. The light is before you, but only for a little bit longer. And so believe, otherwise the darkness will overtake you. There's a point in unbelief, uh, there's a point of no return. That can happen. And so he finishes by saying this. Here's what happens if you remain and persist in that unbelief. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. The one who walks in darkness, the one who remains in unbelief, does not know where he is going. In other words, darkness, unbelief, it will, it will become the setting of your life. This is the danger of unbelief. If you're here, you're curious about Jesus, you kind of asked questions before, but you've kept him at a very safe distance, or you're just not willing to, you're not willing to seek, you're not willing to ask these hard questions or answer these hard questions. The danger of unbelief is you may reach a point of no return where the darkness just overtakes you because that setting of darkness, it becomes comfortable. It becomes your home. It becomes all you've ever known. And what happens when you're comfortable and in your home, you know, in the, dark, in the darkness? Y you resist change. You do. Because you're comfortable now. And why inconvenience ourselves? Why take the risk of messing everything up that we've created for ourselves in the darkness? And that's the danger, is you could live in the darkness and not even know it. And here's what's really, I think Jesus, you know, as he teaches here in verse 35, where he says, you can be in the darkness and not know where you are going. Uh, it's a metaphor that's really true to reality. So if you are uh, walking and living in unbelief uh, without God real, revealed in Jesus, if, you've, if you're keeping him out of your life, two things are going to happen, okay? First, you're going to lack a point of reference for all of your life. You're going to lack that guiding point of reference, and therefore your life is going to be deficient of purpose and meaning because there's all these man-made philosophies, all these manufactured worldviews. We hear them every day. We're presented with them every day, but no man-made, manufactured viewpoint on life, no life coach, no philosophy of today, nothing really is going to give you a framework for life that helps you tap into fullness, the fullness of your existence, and answer all those hardest, hardest questions. It just doesn't work. Those, those things only go so deep and last so long. And the other problem with rejecting God revealed in Jesus, besides that you lack that reference point for all of life, is all of us, listen here, this is important, all of us have to answer the question of origin, morality, purpose, and destiny, where I've come from, what is good and what is beautiful and what is true, why am I here and where am I going? We all have to have an answer for those questions with consistency, with congruency and coherency. Otherwise, life just feels like it doesn't make sense. Eventually, over time, life begins to come apart at the seams and you just feel like you're a walking contradiction because, because you're living according to contradictions, because nothing's consistent. 
So without that reference point for life, you're in the darkness without help, without a guide. And it feels like life is purposeless, and it feels like life is meaningless, and it feels like you are inconsistent and you are a contradiction. So doubt is good. You know, doubt, it's an ally in our search for truth. It should push us us towards truth. Doubt's not bad. It's an ally. Unbelief is bad. (laughs) Unbelief is that I'm unwilling, I'm resistant to take a chance on change. I'm just going to hunker down and hermit in this darkness, and I'm comfortable here now. That's, That's where you know that you're in trouble. So my hope is that your doubts and skepticism about life and how it works and those hard questions catalyze you towards Jesus. But if you don't listen to that disturbance within you, if, you're, if you don't open yourself up to what's unsettling you, those doubts, then you're going to remain in the darkness and eventually become comfortable in the darkness. But that danger, okay, that is dangerous, but, but Jesus now is going gonna, is gonna to do something. His actions are going to show us the, the fullest extent of this, um, the fullest expression of this, verses 36 and 37. Here's what happens next. When Jesus, he, he said these things, it says, John writes, that he departed and he hid himself from them. So he makes himself unavailable to them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe so the evidence, it's been laid before them time and time again. They still do not believe. So Jesus, he purposefully, it's not accidental, Jesus purposefully departs. He purposefully makes his exit. Why would he do that? Why would he dip out now after saying all of this? Verse 38 tells us, So that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So Jesus is, what Jesus is experiencing here as the speaker and revealer of God's truth is exactly what Isaiah experienced generations before this. Isaiah's ministry, uh, his words, they were not listened to. They were ignored, and now Jesus' words are ignored. Verse 38, keep going. And it also says, to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The arm of the Lord, that phrase refers to God's mighty acts, his acts of deliverance for the people. They've forgotten them. They, they had forgotten them. And here in this time, what's God's, what's God's arm that's revealed? It's Jesus' miracles and signs that he's performing. It's been laid before their eyes very clearly, yet they have ignored them. It hasn't made its way into their hearts. They've plugged their ears and closed their eyes. And so Jesus departs now. And so he makes his exit now to like give the fullest realization of what Isaiah experienced before. And because Jesus departs and hides, John writes the result, 39 through 40, and this is the danger of unbelief again. Therefore, the result is they could not believe. They could not believe. They could not believe. For Isaiah again said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts. Otherwise, they would see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. So what what John is saying here, what Jesus is doing here, all of it comes together, and here's what's happening. Just like in generations past, the people heard God's words and witnessed God's actions and still did not believe. And so they were driven deeper into unbelief by Isaiah. That, that for these verses that um, John is referencing, they come from Isaiah chapter 6. In Isaiah chapter 6, it's that story, that scene where Isaiah sees the glory of God and he's totally captivated by the glory of God and then he is sent to go and preach God's truth to Israel, 
But what happens is in his preaching, in his speaking of God's truth, the very words, the very ministry of Isaiah causes a deeper divide. It, it, it drives them even further away in unbelief because they resisted. They did not want to release something. They did not want to change. They did not want to submit themselves to God's will. And so the very words of Isaiah were polarizing. It sent them deeper into unbelief, and that very same thing is happening here. And so Jesus, he preaches the truth. He does what is true. He gives all the clear evidence. Their hearts are hardened. So Jesus dips out, makes his exit to reinforce and put a stamp on this reality that you, if you continue in unbelief for long enough, you can be far gone. You can be given over to your resistance. That's the danger of unbelief. You can reach a point of no return. And so if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, I really want you to listen because this is really, really important. It's possible to live in unbelief long enough till you become comfortable in it so much so that you never want to leave and never could imagine leaving it's, it's possible to love the darkness so much that Jesus' words and his ways are actually a threat to you. They're a threat to what you've always known, and they make you dwell deeper in the darkness. C.S. Lewis, he has this one quote. It's a quote about love, about being loved, but I think it applies, the principle applies really well to receiving God and to being open to God. And here's what he says. To love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. Your heart will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable impenetrable, irredeemable. That happens to us when we live in unbelief for long enough. We become unable to receive truth, unable to receive beauty and goodness. We become resistant to it because it's way too much of a threat to the life that we have built. And now, and now imagine being consciously aware that you're without a reference point in life. They are lost, they have no guiding point, that nothing makes sense, that you're this walking self-contradiction, you don't know your origin, you don't know your meaning, you don't know morality, why it's here, you don't know where you're going. Imagine being in that place of just being utterly lost without questions, but being totally unwilling to look for the remedy. Being totally unwilling to reach your hand out and, and to, to meet God as he offers himself. Unbelief can lead you there to a point of misery and hopelessness. So that's the danger of unbelief. If you're here and you're, you're seeking and you're curious and you're not a follower of Jesus, like you, there is a point of no return. There's a danger there. But there's also a danger for majority of us in here who are followers of Jesus, who are Christians, who would say that, yeah, like I walk with Jesus. I believe in Jesus. I believe the gospel. There's a danger for us too, okay? Because look at verse 41. Isaiah said these things because he saw God's glory and he spoke of him. And what that means is Isaiah, he saw God in all of his glory. How amazing is that? 
And then he was sent and catalyzed, and he lived for God with no reservations, no limitations. That glory of God that he beheld, it just saturated his being and changed his life. It invaded every nook and cranny of his heart. He was all of he was owned by God after that. And then that's now contrasted with verses 42 and 43, and those who follow Jesus secretly. Look what it says, nevertheless, on the other hand, in comparison, many of the authorities believed in him, believed in Jesus, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it. So, we're supposed to see this parallel between what Isaiah experienced and what these authorities experienced. Isaiah saw the glory of God. These authorities believed in Jesus. They saw the glory of God in flesh. Isaiah went and spoke of him. No reservations. I'm living for you, God. But look what they did. It says they did not confess it. So they saw what Isaiah saw, but they did not live like Isaiah lived. See get that? See that? How's it play out? Uh, they did not confess it. Why? So that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. They experienced what Isaiah did, but they did not live like he did. The danger of unbelief is just as real for us Christians. It really is. Now, the consequence is different. Those in darkness can be lost to the darkness. We have the light. We're in the light. We're saved. We're forgiven. But it's very possible to have seen the glory of God, beheld the glory of God, and keep it also at a very safe and measured distance from you. It's very possible to let the glory of God just be a docile, managed thing in your life without letting it overwhelm your being and invade your life. See, it's possible to believe intellectually, but not functionally, right? We talk about knowing God, like I know God, I have knowledge of God. You know, in our Western minds, we think knowledge is cognitive, but it's not. In the Bible, in the Old Testament, when it says that a husband and wife knew each other, like they had knowledge of each other, that's like full vulnerability, full integration. It's, it's your whole being that is overcome by knowledge, that knows something, that's interacting with something, right? So it's very possible to believe in God but only to a certain extent. To behold the glory of God, but only to a certain extent. And when we functionally unbelieve, we put then a very, very short ceiling on our experience of His glory, and the result of unbelief for the Christian is a life that is powerless and a life that is joyless because what you know has not invaded what you do. You're literally cutting off experiencing the glory of God in its fullest measure. You're letting it just be a thought instead of a life on display with power and joy and victory. Like Isaiah saw the glory of God and then spoke of it, was just captivated by it. Now, if you are here and you are a Christian who is keeping God's glory at a safe distance, which I'm sure all of us would be honest and say, to a degree, all of us do that. Here is why this is dangerous, the danger of unbelief. As long as you keep God's glory safe and measured from you, your heart, it will long for the world. Like you're going to look at your friends and look at your outside world and you look at your former life, remember your former days, and you're going to say, That's, I miss that. 
that seems really fun, that seems so convenient. But then your head, your knowledge is going to hold you back and say, I can't, I shouldn't do that, I ought not to do that. And so following Jesus, it will become a very dull experience for you because you'd rather be living for yourself, but you know better. And you'll come to the end of your life having had very little fun and very little God. So as long as we are divided between God and something else, our belief in God, it will remain immature, it will remain weak, we'll move out into the world powerless and ineffective. Functionally, we are in unbelief. We believe in God but are not gripped by God. There's a difference. And so this is why in Revelation 3, if you've read that passage, the church in Laodicea, the seven letters to the churches, God says to the church in Laodicea, I'd rather have you be hot or cold, but you're lukewarm. And that lukewarm water, he says, I just want to spit out of my mouth. He says, I want you all in. Pick a side, hot or cold, but don't do this dance between two allegiances. Don't just play with the glory of God and let it just be a hobby in your life or a compartment in your life. Let it invade every aspect of your being. Right now, we live in a time of so many scandals in the church, don't we? So many leaders falling, so many churches closing their doors, so many churches in decline over scandal and compromise. Why is that? Why do you think that is? I mean, these people who seem impressive and seem godly, powerful preachers, right? Yet they're caught in a scandal. What's happening there? It's very possible <laughs> to know of the glory of God, but never be invaded by the glory of God and overwhelmed by the glory of God, right? It's very possible to be able to articulate about God and talk about what you know of Him, but not have every nook and cranny of your life and your heart and your being and your identity be invaded by knowledge of Him and who He is and His glory and His weight and His radiance. And I'm not saying that with a judgmental attitude right now. <laughs> I say that with the fear of God. Like, God, I don't want to waste my life. I don't want to fail as a father, as a husband, as a pastor. I don't want to compromise. I don't want to take shortcuts. I want the glory of God to become everything to me. I don't want to keep it at a safe and measured distance and just like play with it when it's convenient and when it's not convenient, just do my own thing. I don't want to come to the end of my life and regret it, that I could have, I could have really been radicalized by the glory of God. I remember talking to a midshipman years ago who I was discipling, and he was a Christian. He, he, he came to BCM. You know, I was working for BCM back in the day. He came to BCM. He, he knew all the answers to the Bible. We were discipling. I was discipling him for a long time, and it just became very apparent. Like, like on the table before him was two choices. I can either live for the joy of following Jesus pick up my cross and follow him, live for him and spend the rest of my days doing something significant for the kingdom and know God, whatever it takes to know God, right? To know God. Or I can, you know, chase these political aspirations, chase these short-term goals, give more time of myself to things that are going to forward my career. Like that choice, like I remember the conversation clear as day. It was so apparent there was two choices before him because he understood now what he could have in Jesus, what was offered to him if he would just cross that threshold and go all in and live for the glory of God. I never saw him again after that. I mean, I saw him around. Like, I saw him around the academy talking to his friends. I saw him as he, you know, rose through the ranks. But I never saw him again at BCM. I never saw him again at church because he made that choice. And that's a life of regret right there. 
where you're looking at the world and you're saying, I wish I could have all that, but I know better. But I just know better. So I'm going to keep one foot in the world and one foot over here and dance between two armies, dance between two allegiances. That's a life of regret. And I don't want that to happen to me. I don't want that to happen to us. But that's the danger of unbelief. It can keep us there. So, all right, all of us could find ourselves in, danger of unbel- in the danger of unbelief, but we all have our reasons too. Every single one of us have our reasons why we stay in, unbel- in unbelief. So we passed over them. I want to go back now a few verses and talk about some of the reasons for unbelief. Go back to verse 34. We've read it before. Uh, I'll read it again. It, they answer Jesus. They say this. We've heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of, the son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this son of man? Remember, they have this idea of who Jesus should be. They're projecting their aspirations and their hopes, their vision of the good life. They're projecting that onto Jesus, hoping that's who he's going to be. But here's who Jesus actually is, who he really is. He's not that king, that military king that they have in their heads. Jesus is not compatible with them because at the end of the day, they have their own vision of the good life. What's going to make them happy? Verse 37, Jump down there. John writes, though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. Now, this is interesting. Jesus has done remarkable signs. And in the Gospel of John, he uses that word specifically, signs. Like Jesus' miracles are a message in themselves. They point to something beyond that, the physical reality to the spiritual reality that has to do with him and what he's doing. So Jesus, you know, he's changed the water to wine, saying, you know, I'm bringing in the joy. I'm bringing the new covenant. I'm bringing the fullness of life. I'm the greatest, you know, MC at a wedding. I'm bringing the best wine. Jesus has fed the multitudes. Like he's the bread of life. He is true life. Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead. He is the resurrection and the life. Over and over, these signs that Jesus has performed that are tremendous, yet they could not believe in his words. They could not believe in his message. Why is that? because they're coming to Jesus on their terms, not on his terms. And when you come to Jesus on your terms, there's going to always be something in the way of you fully receiving Jesus. You know, you're going to hear something. They heard Jesus say things every now and then that that gave a hint or a, a hint of that he might be the king they're looking for. And so they took that little bit and they ran with it. But then he would say things that were out of left field that they had no way to organize and, compart- and, and understand in their minds. Why? Because they couldn't release that one thing, their vision of the good life, how they thought things should go, what they thought would make them happy. And so it made them dull. It desensitized them. It was just like in one ear and out the other or just hitting their foreheads and falling to the ground. It just didn't make sense to them because there was a blockade in the way. The reason for unbelief especially if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, if you're seeking and considering but having, having not committed yet, the reason is because there's something you cannot release. And look, <laughs> we like to pretend that we're such objective creatures, that we're so rational, that we make our decisions with our reason, capital R reason, like true objective. We're not objective at all. I'm not, you're not, none of us are. We are emotional creatures. We make decisions based on how it makes us feel, emotional return, if it fits what we think will make us happy. And then we use our reason 
after to justify that decision. We like to think we're reasonable people, that we're logical people, but we're not. We are emotional people, and so I'm just going to cut through the smoke right now. Through all the debates, through all the objections, to get to the bottom of any person's decision-making process and tell you that the reason why you're resistant to Jesus is not because there's an actual criticism or objection. There's, I mean, there's things we can talk about. I'm not, I'm not saying those things are not important. I'm saying fundamentally there's something that you don't want to let go of because it would be too much of a change, too much of just an undoing of things. It would be too hard to release that one thing. So if you're here and you're, and, you're, and you're seeking, let me tell you this. You need to believe. Like, what, do you, what should you believe? What should you choose to believe the rest of your life? You need to believe in what has explanatory power for the human experience. What I mean by that is what explains and meets head-on what we feel and what we can't shake in our lives, in our human experience. That, the best explanation that explains our human experience, that should win out. But if you are committed first and foremost before anything to your comfort, to your convenience, to yourself, then you'll never change. You'll commit confirmation bias in all of your interpretation and in all of your seeking. So the choice here is before you today. Talking about the reasons for unbelief, okay? The choice is you can either keep comfort, you can keep convenience, you can keep self and live in that incoherence and that contradiction, or you can give up comfort and convenience and self, have a life that makes sense, have answers to your questions, but both come at, come at a cost. You either have to give up self and convenience. Or you have to take the risk of going and living that way, but being miserable. Which would you be willing to pay? Which cost would you be willing to pay? A life of contradiction or change, but true life? Is the reason you remain in unbelief because of what it might cost you? But again, Christians commit unbelief too, right? So what are our reasons? What are our reasons for why we don't believe? We have our reasons. Verse 43. Those who saw Jesus but didn't confess him, didn't speak of him, it says they did so because they didn't want to be put out of the synagogue and because they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. They loved the glory that comes from other people accolades, being impressive, the applause, the affirmation. They loved the glory that comes from others more than the glory that comes from God. Now, glory, that word's all over our Bibles. In context, usually helps us decide, like, how exactly we're to understand God, glory. It's a very dense word. I think in this context, the best way to, to, like, understand glory here is weight. You could translate it as weight. In the scales, they were weighing God's opinion of them, God's approval of them, what God thinks of them versus what my friends and my community and my family, my employer, superiors, what they think of me. Do they approve of me? Am I impressive to them? They were weighing in the scales which one is better, which one is more important, which one weighs more, which one's more glorious. And they chose as their community, their friends, their superiors that mattered more. 
Now, what does caring about what others think more than what God thinks of us, why, what does that have to do with unbelief? That's the theme of this passage. What's the connection? Look, I know in my own life, <laughs> I struggle with this. I struggle. Most pastors struggle with this. Like, pastors at first, they don't know, but they get into ministry because it's a good place for people who want success to hide in. Okay, this is a huge struggle of my life. My default is to care so much about what people think of me. And until I started realizing what the gospel has actually won for me, the Father's approval, that I am his beloved son, that I am draped in the very righteousness of Jesus, and that's how he considers me and looks at me and delights in me. But until that, until that realization dawned on me, I was just dominated by fearing other people and what they thought of me dominated by needing to be impressive, dominated by trying to get people's approval. It just ran my life. It made me anxious. It made me a workaholic. It made me perfectionist. It made me self-righteous. Does this resonate with any of you? Caring what other people think, it's just the air we breathe. The highest virtue of our current cultural moment, it's to be impressive, like, that's virtuous, is to be seen and to be impressive. All you have to do is think about when you get those likes on social media, how good it makes you feel, those endorphins that are released. And what happens is you get hooked and addicted to that endorphin spike. You need it, and so you need those likes. You keep posting. You need those likes. You keep posting. You're dominated. We get dominated. Our culture teaches us to be dominated by what other people think, living for the glory of others, not for the glory of God. Weighing in the scales, whose opinion matters more, so you get more gods or others. Our culture teaches us to be impressive and care about what people see and think of us. And when, here's a connection. Okay, what does this have to do with unbelief? When we fail to let the glory of God just bulldoze us and yield ourselves to the glory of God, we leave ourselves vulnerable to lesser glories and they will tyrannize us they will tyrannize us. You know, we've been trained, like I said, to keep our eyes on ourselves. That's our culture, the self, the individual. How am I doing? How am I seen? How do I appear? That's our, that's our moment right now. We need to change <laughs> and keep our eyes on God. It's a subtle shift, but it makes all the difference. Take our eyes off ourselves and put them on God. A.W. Tozer famously said that the most important thing about a person, the most important thing about you is what comes to your mind when you think of God. When you think of God, what comes to your mind? Is your God docile, safe, smaller than your fears and your problems? Or is your God big and magnificent and awesome and fearsome and great and mighty and holy and sovereign? Is your God impressive? See, we move through life dominated by what others think of us because we attribute so much weight to them when God is the only one worthy of fear. God is the only one worthy of that weight. <laughs> and what happens when you begin to yield yourself to the glory of God, this awesome, fearsome, incredible God, this, if you get a big-sized vision of God, you're going to be set free to confess him, even if it puts you out of the synagogue, even if it costs you the glory of man because you're not losing anything anyway. 
You have it all already in the glory of God. So the same diagnosis for those who do not believe, like there's just something that you don't want to let go of, this vision of life, the good life, what's going to make you happy that you don't want to let go of, we all have that too. But for us, it's do people think I'm righteous? Do people think I'm smart? Do people think I'm a hard worker? Do people think of me, think of me, see me, approve of me? And it's the subtle shift. Take our eyes off ourselves and put them on our glorious God. And in time, and I bet in a short amount of time, you'll begin to be moved. You'll begin to be electrified by the glory of God. So, I'm going to keep moving. We have still a little more to cover, okay? Uh, we've seen the danger, the reasons for unbelief, but now John is going to teach us the judgment against our unbelief, and he's going to teach us that this judgment of God is fair because we're held accountable, okay? So go back to verses 44 through 46. Jesus cries out. So this is back before Jesus. Apparently, this is Jesus' closing words. As he's departing and exiting, this is what he says. This is like drop the mic moment. He says, whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. Whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. So what Jesus is saying here is that he is the very revelation of God. He's the extension of God. He is the light of God breaking into the darkness. If you want to know who God is, what God demands, what God expects, what he is like, then you look to Jesus. These crowds saw Jesus in flesh. They witnessed God in flesh. We read the accounts of God in flesh, Jesus. And these accounts, what we've witnessed, what we've come to know, we know what God is like through Jesus and what he expects. We're held accountable because of that, by that. The basis of our judgment is that Jesus has come and revealed. 47 through 50, let's keep reading. If anyone hears my words, so not only just that we've seen Jesus, have an account of him, but it's also now what he's taught. Like he's been very clear. <laughs> he's left nothing up to guessing. He's given us his words. If anyone hears my words, does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to the world to, but, uh, to judge, but to save. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. Here's our judge. Here's, here's the basis of our judgment. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. Jesus' teachings perfectly reveal God and God's will. He speaks what is true without error. He articulates the way to salvation, the way to fullness of life. So judgment against our unbelief, Jesus wants us to know that it's fair. And it's on the basis of Jesus' arrival. It's on the basis of his teaching. Both show us that God is real and what God expects of us. Two things. First, I know that when we talk about judgment, Everybody gets a little nervous. Everybody gets a little defensive. I know that. But first, I want, I want to highlight two things. One, don't forget that God loves to save. That's what Jesus says here very clearly in verse 47. Why did Jesus come? What's Jesus, like, what's Jesus on the edge of his seat to do in his coming to earth? To save, verse 47, I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. That's his heart. That does not, though, mean that we're without accountability. That does not preclude God's judgment. Second thing, if, you, uh, if judgment makes you uncomfortable, let's just take a moment and be honest with ourselves, okay? Jesus' arrival, what we can witness through him, the account of him and his words, shows us what God is like and what God expects. 
Other places call that the law of God, his standards, his design for life. So let's just be honest with ourselves for a moment and think about, is this fair? Imagine with me, okay, that projected on that wall, because it's the clearest wall, is all your thoughts you've had your entire life, your hidden thoughts, and also all of your motivations for everything you've done, even your altruistic good things that you've done. Let's, let's say that all your motivations are projected on the wall for all to see, all your thoughts, all your motivations, all your life for everything you've done. If that were to happen, if, <laughs> if, that, if somebody knew that these things about me, you know what I'd want to do? The same thing you'd want to do, go crawl in a hole and never be seen again, right? So let's just be honest with ourselves. Jesus has shown us the way to salvation. He has shown us God's expectations, God's design for life, and we know that we do not meet it. I mean, what's that instinct show us? I want to go crawl in the hole and never be seen again. Like, we know we deserve judgment. We don't want to be seen by others because we don't want to be looked down on, right? Like, we know that we're guilty. And so I know that talking about judgment makes me a little uncomfortable, but if you're really honest with yourself and analyze yourself, what Romans chapter 2 calls your conscience, the law of God written on our hearts, we all know we're guilty. We all know we don't rise to the occasion and meet God's standards. Heck, we don't even meet our own standards, right? So we have our reasons for unbelief. We have the danger of unbelief. And God will judge our unbelief. And it's fair. Lastly, there is still hope. Though, despite our unbelief, there's hope for every single one of us. So, the danger of unbelief before I've ever said, there's a point where you can, there's a point of no return. Like, you can enter the darkness long enough, get so comfortable in the darkness, hermit in the darkness, that you're never going to leave. But if you're here today, if you are here in church today, I have every reason to believe that you have not reached that point yet, that God has brought you here. Jesus has said in verses 35 and 36, walk while you have the light, believe the light that you may become sons of light. That offer is still for you right now. Jesus has not departed and exited. That hasn't happened for any one of us yet. Walk, believe, become. Walk, believe, become. The offer is still on the table. One of my favorite verses is Mark chapter 1, verse 15. It's going to be on the screen, and, and you'll know why it's one of my favorite ones. Jesus says this as he begins his ministry, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. That word time, it's not chronos. Like we're not supposed to understand that as just mere chronology. The word there is kairos in the Greek. It's a kairos moment. Kairos is a moment that's pregnant with possibility. Kairos is a moment that, that there has been a huge lead up to. Something has been in the works for a very, very long time that leads up to this moment that's pregnant with possibility. Some theologians call it eternity breaking into the present. It's a kairos moment. The time has been fulfilled. It's here it's upon us. So you're here right now in church. God has brought you here. He has arranged all the days of your life and all the decisions you've made and all the people you've met in your life to bring you here into this chair, listening to this dummy talk at you for like an hour, okay? This is your moment. This is a, a kairos moment, a moment pregnant with possibility. God has brought you here, so it's not, you're not too far gone. 
you're not too far into the darkness, walk in the light, believe in the light, become a son of light. And it's just as simple as repent and believe in the gospel. The announcement from Jesus that he is a kind king who is so kind that he's going to die for us in our place. In fact, take the darkness of God's judgment on himself so we would never have to. He was abandoned, forsaken by God, so we never would be. That's the gospel. Repent and believe in the gospel. Forgiven. You're forgiven. You can be forgiven. Clean slate, new identity, a life that has meaning and a life that has purpose and life to come and the age to come. That's God's promise for you. So walk in the light. Become sons of light. Believe in the light. Now for all of us here, the reasons for unbelief for all of us, Christians, it's the same. There's something that we're holding on to that we think we can't live without. That if we were to give it up, that God's going to get it wrong. Jesus, I, I, he says, become sons of light. Meaning, yield. Yield yourself to the process here. I don't have any fancy way to end this. I kind of ran out of inspiration. But I just want to charge you to cease keeping God's glory at this safe, measured distance and to just begin to let God's glory invade your life. Just begin. It's not like it has to be from, you know, whiplash, like extremes. It doesn't have to be perfect. Just begin to yield yourself. Become the son of light that you already are, the daughter of light that you already are. So what does that look like for you? For some of you, that just looks like beginning to read your Bible, beginning to pray. For some of you, that means like gathering in a community. It just means committing more deeply to this community here. I don't know what it means for you, but I can tell you this confidently, that just as I'm telling you know, those in unbelief that God has brought you here today to hear this message, that you may become a son of light, God has brought each and every one of us here today so that he can charge you in whatever way it looks like to you personally, to yield yourself to becoming a son of light, to let the glory of God invade not just what you know and your theology and your doctrine, that's really good, that's fine, but to let what you know begin to invade your life and move out into the world in power and in love and in victory. Begin living for the glory of God. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, help our unbelief. We need you. And so, Father, would you um, strengthen our faith now? You say in Luke's gospel, if you ask for the Holy Spirit, it, he will be given. And so we're indwelt by the Spirit, but we ask for to be filled by the Spirit, to be strengthened by the Spirit, to be compelled and inspired by the Spirit of God who lives within us, that you would give us clarity, God, on what we ought to do, what our next steps are to yield ourselves more to your glory. God, we repent and turn away from unbelief. We repent and turn away from caring about what other people think of us. We repent and turn away from darkness. God, we want to walk in the light and believe in the light, become the sons of light that we already are. Lord, would you help us to do this? In your name we pray, amen. For more information about Citizens Church, please go to citizensannapolis.com.